Making Sense of Suffering is the title. This is Philippians 1.27. It reads, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, verse 29, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. You may be seated. Father, thank you so much for your word. Making sense of suffering is a difficult, difficult topic. It's probably the number one issue that we wrestle with, the problem of evil, suffering in the world. Yet we know we, we just read a passage that addresses it, and it actually says that one of the graces of the Christian life, as weird as this may sound, is not just salvation, but it's suffering. And Paul talked about in Philippians 3, I want to know the power of your resurrection, Jesus, and even the fellowship of your sufferings. And you do something in suffering for the believer, Lord, that is unique. And something that it does do, I think, for all people is it causes us to realize that we are not in control and that we have to look up. And we have to make sense of why you allow suffering. And we're going to tackle a little bit of that today. And we need all the wisdom we can get, Father. So would you grant us that wisdom from your word? Would you grant us insights and application May our hearts be pleasing in the way that we respond to your word, and may you be glorified in these moments we have together. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. I don't have to tell you that the issue of pain and suffering is uh, prominent in people's minds and hearts. Uh, the Barna, Barna Group, which is, does national polls, and this is a poll that came out and was actually recorded in Lee Strobel's book called The Case for Faith. Uh, the, a survey was taken and people were asked, if you could ask God one question and you know he would answer you before you die, what question would you ask him? And about one in five people responded, I would ask God why there's so much pain and suffering in the world. And that is a question that's on everybody's hearts, not just outside the church, but inside the church, no doubt. And we've come off, you know, two years of this whole COVID crisis and despite, you know, the different reports and different points of view that uh, may come in and the clarity that we're getting on some of the things uh, that it may have been overdone, at least in some cases, uh, still with that, we know there's a lot of people who lost their lives, a lot of people who suffered, a lot of people who were very scared and still are scared today. We kind of finally get some semblance of order back and some normalcy back only to see a war break out in Ukraine. I was just reading an article uh, yesterday where a ministry has uh, gone to Ukraine and there's a woman who is doing widow and orphan ministry, trying to get food to people, which is one of the biggest needs right now, and trying to get basically widows and orphans out of the war zone. And she herself was kidnapped apparently by Russian troops, and they don't know where she is. And uh, they're asking for prayer for her, and her name escapes me at the moment, but that's just one of many examples. You have someone go out with good intentions, they're basically just trying to be the hands and feet of Jesus, and they get kidnapped, and they don't know what's happened to her, if she's being tortured, if she's been killed, where she is, and on and on it goes. And we all know that at some point in the fallen world in which we live, Suffering is going to hit as a thud on our porch. And it's going to be like an early morning newspaper. Sometimes we may expect it. Sometimes we may not. But we have to wrestle with it. And it's a, world, uh, it's a reality in the world that every worldview has to wrestle with. Why do we suffer? And can you make any sense of it? Uh, there are you know, big names who have uh, commented on this very topic. For example, Richard Dawkins Oxford University, renowned evolutionary thinker, he'd be an atheist naturalist, says these words, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, 
and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it or any justice. The universe, says Dawkins, we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Close quote. Now that's a leading evolutionary naturalist who would argue that this world that we live in is simply the consequence of an explosion that happened billions of years ago. He would probably admit to you that he doesn't know where the stuff came from to explode and who's behind all of that and how an explosion could cause the immense, incredible order that we see in the universe. But for Dawkins, that's where he has landed. That's his worldview. He believes that we're on a celestial ball in space and nobody's driving. And I don't know how that makes you feel, but personally, that doesn't help any of my sleeping at night. But we all know that we're not, we're not in this just to make us feel better. We don't, we don't want a panacea. We don't want just a pie-in-the-sky idea where it's not corresponding to reality. But I have to tell you that the Christian worldview actually does correspond to reality. Because here's the basic idea. You are in a building right now. If you were to look up just for a moment, you'll see lights carefully placed. They have electrical lines going to them, doors and windows, technology, uh, the shell of a building, carpeting, cushy pews. We could go through all the details of this building. And if I told you that this building exists, it emerged over billions of years with the correct amount of lightning strikes just hitting a soupy substance known as New England clam chowder. And then the building just over time emerged with all its intricate design, alarm system, etc. You would say, Pastor Michael, you're nuts. If I told you that my dream car might be a red Corvette, I'm not sure it is, but anyway. And I told you that the red Corvette that you observe with its wheels and rims and systems and motor and color and door and window and all that stuff, if I told you that it emerged over billions of years out of the ground, lightning strikes and just enough, uh, enough rain and, and all of this and <laughs> out comes, you know, the red Corvette just beautifully shined, ready for me to turn over the key. <laughs> you would say, Pastor Michael, are you nuts? Yes, I, I, I agree. That's an amen from over here. <laughs> Here's the thing. If there's a building, there's a builder. If there's a painting, there's a painter. If there's a car, there's a car designer and manufacturer. And if there's a creation, then there's a creator. Amen? Now that's the logic of the Christian worldview. And I could talk to you about the incredible design of our bodies, our eyes, our circulatory system. The heavens declare the glory of God. Just the heavens alone, without even talking about humanity and the millions of forms of plants and animals, they all cry out that there's a creator. Now, if you have settled that question, and I think most of you have, then here's the next question. Okay, if there is a creator, why is there so much suffering in the world? If someone like Dawkins can take shots at the Christian worldview from over here, or a journalist says something like this, Stephen Turner, if chance be the father of all flesh, he's kind of going with this worldview, no God, disaster is his rainbow in the sky. And when you hear state of emergency or sniper kills 10 or youths go looting, bomb blasts in a school, it is but the sound of man worshiping his maker, close quote. In other words, if man is at, if this universe is all just about man, if man is at the center of it, if it's just about humanism, as we might call it, then man just does what he does and we could just chalk it up to survival of the fittest or, you know, whatever you, however you would categorize it. But here's what happens. If there is a God who made the world and everything in it, and he's going to wind up the times. Where is he? And this is what people say. Where is he in the war in Ukraine? Where is he when this 
worker was taken and, you know, kidnapped. Where is he when my friend or family member has cancer? And on and on it goes, right? The problem of evil permeates everything. And in a fallen world, we're inevitably going to have it hit our lives. And we're going to have to face it. I told the story at first service. I'll tell it again. And I believe, Cherry, if you're watching from another state, we love you and we miss you. Uh, Pastor John had some um, CDs in his desk and he was going through some of his stuff and he found a memorial service from about 2012. In 2012, some of you will remember this, we had a wonderful elder, his wife Cherry, who lives in a different state now. And Scott Arnold, one of our beloved elders, had been diagnosed with an inoperable brain cancer. Uh, At best, the doctors told Scott, people live about five years and that's if they're doing really well. So basically, the diagnosis, you have a couple years to live and you have an option. There is a surgery we can do. It's a life and death surgery where they open up your skull and that will only prolong your life. It's not gonna fix this. It won't repair it. And the surgery is so invasive that you could die on the table. So Scott had to decide that and then had to know that even with the surgery, he would still have a short amount of time to live. Scott opted for the surgery along with his lovely bride, praying through that and all of that. And the, the video that we saw was Scott addressing our men and telling them to keep the faith that God was good. And Scott was a miracle because when he came out of that surgery, they didn't know, they thought he might have to relearn how to walk and talk. Well, he was articulate. He was telling jokes right after the surgery was done. So God had done some miracles. He had done some miracles in the hospital with Scott and Cherry's witness and so forth. But Scott did end up passing away. And he loved golf. And I remember that when he was, you know, kind of things were winding down, at least this side of heaven, we went out and played golf one day and he just wanted to be out there. And I remember, you know, he was standing over his golf ball and his vision had been impaired by the, the surgery and the cancer. And he swung and missed at the golf ball at least five times on this, this one hole we were on. And he swung and, and he missed the ball and then he tried to recover and, and, and my heart was breaking for him. And some of you say, well, that's my normal golf game. I swing and miss all the time. Well, we'll pray for you if that's the case. But, but, but I remember just being so heartbroken because I knew how much Scott loved golf and he was just, he would have been happy if he just hit the ball and hit a ground ball. But it was hard. It was hard to watch and it was hard uh, as things wound down and he had ongoing headaches and there was a, there was a good amount of suffering. And it's hard. It, it, it's very personal. You know, it, it, you, can, you can watch suffering from a distance and be somewhat, you know, you can keep yourself from it. You can switch the channel if you want to, so to speak. But we know when it hits close to home, it is very hard. And so what do we do with suffering? How do we make sense of it? How does Paul instruct us to navigate it? We have just a few verses. We're going to look at verse 27 of Philippians 1. And I'm reading from the NIV so we can see what Paul says here. He says, whatever happens, 127, he's talking about his situation. He's in prison as he writes this. He may get out. He may not. He may be released and see the Philippian church that he loves so much. Again, he may die. Caesar may just say, that's it. This guy dies. He says, whatever happens, 127, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Only conduct yourselves, New American Standard, part A of verse 27, worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, Christian suffering has been something that has marked the last two millennia. Eleven of the twelve apostles of Jesus Christ die a martyr's death. Those records are uh, of those stories are uh, in a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs, updated by uh, the band. um, They wrote the the book is called Jesus Freaks DC Talk. And by the way, I think DC Talk, I think one of their members has now walked away from his faith, if I recall correctly. But anyway, they called the book Jesus Freaks, and it, and it went through and told those stories of how uh, Peter was crucified upside down and how others were killed uh, simply for holding to their confession of faith in Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus said it this way, a servant is not above his master. If they hated me, they're gonna hate you as well. He said, in this world, you are going to have trouble. You're, you are going to suffer like me, but you're gonna become more like me as you go through that. And so um, Christian suffering has marked the time. Uh, those who look at statistics like this say that there's been more martyrs in the previous century, the last 100 years, than all the previous centuries combined. In fact, there was one study done of a period within the last 100 years where I think, if I recall this correctly, a Christian was dying every three minutes somewhere in the world simply for professing the Christian faith. And so this reality has permeated the culture throughout time. The West, we've been blessed because there's been a Judeo-Christian foundation in the West. But you know how things have gotten crazy. And of all places, it's gotten whacked out in Canada. James Coates has just co-authored a book with a man named Nathan Businitz. Nathan is a uh, teacher of church history at the Master Seminary, and he's now the vice president of the seminary. And they've co-authored a book called God and Government. And James Coates, pastor in Canada, recounts the story of how he and the elders of their church, I think it's called Grace Life Church, uh, decided to stay open during uh, COVID because they knew that they needed to minister to their people and whoever felt comfortable coming, they wanted to keep their doors open during a very you know, critical time. Well, the Canadian government said, if you have a sanctuary of 500, that's about what this is right here, five, 600 people. They said you could bring in 15% of your sanctuary's capacity. Well, James said that the kind of church we are, we not only all meet together, but we eat together. We spend the whole day fellowshipping, fellowshipping together. And he said, what am I going to do? If I tell the church 15% capacity, that means I'm going to have to do about 12 church services on a Sunday morning to try to minister to all the people that God has as part of this family. So they decided through prayer and through agreement, through what we would call civil disobedience, to stay open. Some of you know this story. James Coates, pastor of a church in Canada. Canada is only known for maple syrup, as far as I can recall. Sorry if you're Canadian. They threw him in prison for 35 days. His crime? Keeping his church open during COVID. In Santa Clara County, uh, I've shared the story before, but it's relevant. They find a Calvary Chapel, $1.5 million in fines. And I think the court cases are still going on simply because they said, our church is in the middle of town. There's many broken people, many people dealing with fear and depression. We can't close the doors. And they kept them open fine after fine after fine after fine. Now, those are some modern examples of what the church has faced, but it's, it's faced obviously much worse things. And so the idea of conduct comes to the fore. Only, says Paul, the idea of the language, this one thing is what you should do. Conduct yourselves worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what you need to do, this one thing. The language literally could be rendered only this thing. It would be as if it, the sign of the language would be if I said to you, if I put my one finger up and said, only this. That's what Paul is saying. This and this alone. Now there will be more, but I have to tell you, in Pastor Michael's mind, this one thing takes me back to a movie called City Slickers. Can I get a witness? Anybody else remember the movie City Slickers? So Curly was the guy that was helping them with the, you know, moving the cattle and the whole thing. And he said, you know, he was this cool cowboy and seemed to have total peace and, you know, an outdoorsman. And, and what's the secret of, to life, Curly? This one thing. But then he never told him what it was. So they wanted to know so desperately. And you might remember that Curly is sitting on a rock and he dies with his eyes open. You know, and they don't find out what the one thing was. And one of the great lines in the movie was, well, what did you expect? He ate bacon every day. You just can't do that. <laughs> anyway. Now, this one thing, brethren, you want to know how to 
manage, navigate life in a suffering world where Christians sometimes get the brunt of suffering, if you're taking notes, this one thing. Live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ or conduct yourself worthy. The word for conduct is a word, it has the idea of a city-state, the behavior of a citizen. Uh, the, the polis was the city-state, P-O-L-I-S, kind of the root idea of political but in the Greco-Roman world, you had city-states, and the people were very proud of citizenship. As the world moved from Greek domination to Roman domination, Rome dominated the world. And they would colonize different parts of the world. And Philippi, where Paul planted this church, was actually a Roman colony. What they would do is retired Roman soldiers would kind of, you know, uh, live their retirement out in a certain colony. But it would literally be a Rome away from Rome. Since Rome dominated so much of the known world, if you were a citizen of Philippi, you were actually a Roman citizen with Roman laws and Roman, you know, uh, whatever the most important things to Rome were. So citizenship was a huge deal. You might remember that Paul uh, says he's a Roman citizen and he can't be beat without a trial. He actually claims his Roman citizenship. So the Roman, uh, the Philippian church receiving this letter probably were all uh, benefits, uh, beneficiaries of this Roman citizenship in the colony, if you will, of Philippi. Paul, using that idea, says, I want you to be a good citizen. But in this case, not a citizen of Philippi or Rome, but a citizen of the commonwealth of heaven. In fact, in chapter 3, verse 20, if you take a peek ahead, a future study for us, Paul says, Philippians 3, 20, our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he talks about how the Lord's going to transform our body. And the resurrection is going to lead into this time when he obviously sets up a new kingdom, wipes away all of our tears. And so that's where our citizenship lies. Now, I'm, I'm speaking to a group of uh, American citizens, and I think most of you would be American citizens. And you know that it's a huge thing to be an American citizen. It's very important. You know, people who come over here, citizenship is a huge thing for them. And what is true of America, with all of its issues and problems, is that across the 50 states, we are a constitutional republic. And, we, and though a lot of people are not following the Constitution anymore, we know that that was kind of the anchor point of the nation. It was a, the Constitution would dictate the most important things for an American citizen. And they were the obligations of being part of the citizenry. That's what Paul is saying here. As a person that's connected to the commonwealth of the Christian family or part of the kingdom of God, you have obligations that go with that citizenship. What are those obligations? That you conduct yourself worthy of the citizen that you are. The rights and the obligations of the kingdom of God are yours to live out, to enjoy the rights and, and the beauties of it and to live out the obligations of it. And one of the obligations of that kingdom is to live worthy of the gospel. And simply put, the gospel is Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his triumphant ascension back into heaven, his current ministry to the people of God. We proclaim good news, but our call is to be worthy to the king, worthy to the gospel of the king, worthy to the good news, worthy to the ultimate kingdom and his kingship. Thus, Paul says this one thing. I want you to balance the scales. The idea of this word in the original language means balance your walk with your talk or balance your walk with who you are. Live a life worthy of the gospel. The believer belongs to a Christian commonwealth. One writer puts it this way. We have a greater citizenship. Yes, we value our American citizenship, but there's one greater. And he says, grace has made them citizens of a heavenly city. In their far-off land, they are, they are a heavenly homeland in miniature. In other words, heaven has come down in the church at Philippi, just like Rome has a colony of Philippi, a Rome away from Rome. Well, heaven is manifest in one sense wherever we live as believers. Amen? Because we're part of the commonwealth of heaven. So heaven's laws are... are uh, 
sphere right here brings heaven down in one sense. Heaven's laws are their laws. Privileges, its privileges. The life worthy of the gospel is an inescapable obligation. It is the essence of the homeland where the lamb standing as though it had been slain, slain forms the focal point of all of life, close quote. And so this is the call. This one thing, live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. So how do we do that? Look at the next verse. It says these words, or look at part B of verse 27. He says, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, he didn't really know how it was all gonna work out. I will hear that you are doing three things in verse 27, mark them, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. I want to hear that you are standing firm, brethren. This is how you walk out a worthy life. In one spirit, with one mind, I take those two together, striving together for the faith of the gospel. This is how you live the life. This is how you walk it out. You stand firm. You are single-minded. You're one in spirit. Some people believe that this is the Holy Spirit being mentioned, but it could be the human spirit here. And then the idea of striving together for the faith of the gospel is one Greek word. And it is a word that speaks of uh, a team approach. It is used in the contending of a team in the athletic arena. Literally, this takes us right in to the gladiator arena. How many of you would put gladiator as a movie in your top five movies? If you haven't, you should repent and return to your first love. Russell Crowe is Maximus, right? And he is uh, basically the kingdom, you know, turns on him and he ends up, you know, they kill his wife, they kill his child. It's just a, it's a terrible thing that happens to him. And off he goes in exile. But as things unfold, he, he becomes a gladiator. And you remember, he makes his way all the way back to the Roman arena to confront the Caesar of the day. And he's this incredible warrior. And you guys, if you've seen the movie, you know what happens. You know, he, he's this great general and he's, he's uh, led the forces of Rome and victory after victory. But now within the arena, he gathers together these various gladiators. And with his leadership, he's able to stay alive and win the crowd. And if you could win the crowd, it was everything, right? And it's this, this great scene at the end where finally he gets his revenge. And all God's people said, yeah. <laughs> anyway, should we say yeah to that? I don't even know. But <laughs> so scholars would tell you the striving together language takes us all the way back to the gladiator arena. And Paul is basically saying this. If you want to do this one thing, you cannot do it alone. You must be yoked together and he's only talking to a little church at Philippi. He's not talking to all you know, churches in Rome right now, just Philippi. And he says, you guys got to be linked together. You got to be a team. You got to be as one. How many of you are watching March Madness right now? Oh, come on. Nobody's watching March Madness right now? College basketball? Put your hand up so I can know I'm not all alone. I knew that your hand was going to be up. Now I will tell you, and this could divide the church. I am a diehard UCLA basketball fan. Can I get a witness? Let's take note of those individuals who will be revoking membership. So I will tell you, okay, I'm, I'm a sports guy. So when my team is playing for about those two hours, people, they establish a perimeter around Pastor Michael. <laughs> it's a safe distance because when my team's playing I coach the you know through the television and it's intense and I pace sometimes and one time Shane got a video of me my my son Shane and I was being intense during a Pittsburgh Steelers game and I was talking to the TV and I could say I said something like this sitting in my lazy boy you gotta be kidding me and he said he's filming me pastor there's pastor Michael Lance right there pastor Michael Lance. <laughs> Why do I bring it up? <laughs> There's a point. So the coach of UCLA is Mick Cronin. He's this little fiery guy. And 
after the first game, uh, UCLA played uh, a team from Akron. And it was a tough game, and they barely squeaked it out. And they do these post-game interviews, and they were talking to the coach, and the coach said these words. He goes, man, it wasn't our best shooting performance, something like this, but he said, we just gutted it out together. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> just gutted it out. I love stuff like that. And do you know that that is essentially what Paul is saying to the Philippian church? I want you, like the gladiators in arena, to gather together against the opponent and gut it out. Now, I don't think Paul's talking about, you know, digging deep and finding your best stuff in your humanity, no. The Holy Spirit's within all of this, but the idea is that you link arms with other believers and you stand fast. Yesterday, we did a men's conference called Steadfast. This was the main section that I preached on for yesterday. Psalm 112, verses seven and eight. The NIV reads, he, the steadfast blessed man, will have no fear of bad news. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is secure. He will have no fear. In the end, he will look in triumph on his foes. His heart is upheld, one version says, because he trusts in the Lord. That's the steadfast man. And we were trying to get at a definition of steadfastness yesterday. And here's what I suggested to the, the men at the conference. Steadfastness, simply put, is to be immo immovable. Paul puts it this way, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He talks about the resurrection and the return of Christ. And he says, brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that not one thing that you do for the Lord is ever in vain. You know what steadfastness is? It's to be immovable. I ain't going anywhere. I know in whom I have believed. It's gutting it out. And if you don't have it one day, and look, we all go up and down as believers. It's other believers saying, I got you today. I will hold up your heart. It's the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with the triune God. It's the power of Christ, but it's the power of true fellowship. How in the world could that be accomplished through digital means? I believe in digital ministry. We have a radio ministry that's in a lot of parts of the country right now. We live stream this church service. But I will tell you this. If you can get into a church, you better be in fellowship. Because fellowship is more than just eating potlucks together. It's standing arm in arm with other believers and saying, we're not moving. We're going to be immovable. We're going to be steadfast. This is Actually, this last couple of years, I couldn't have imagined as a pastor I would be faced with these kinds of things in Southern California. But here we are, and we had to make some tough decisions as a leadership of what we were gonna do. It was no longer reading stories about this stuff. It was actually, now what are you gonna do when you're called to do it? Is it, is it just about Bible studies that you go to, or do you wanna actually live a life where you'll say, I'm not moving? Don McClure tells the story, Calvary Chapel pastor, he said uh, his favorite uh, life verse was Acts 20, 24 in the New King James Version. And Paul is being told by the Holy Spirit that he's going to go to Jerusalem, that chains and, you know, beatings await him. And he says in the New King James Version, but none of these things move me. And basically says, I'm ready to go to Jerusalem and die for Jesus Christ. And so Don says he would write notes to people, Acts 20, 24, none of these things move me. And then he said he went through a personal crisis. And I don't remember where he was, but he said he was walking on the grounds of this property. And I think they had either lost a family member or someone was gravely ill. And he was, you know, doing what we all do. Lord, why? I don't understand. Would you please work? And what's going on? And the Lord spoke to his heart with these words. Is this going to move you? And Don was like, that's not fair. You can't use my verse on me. <laughs> you got all these verses in the Bible and you got to use my verse on me. 
Because the, the verse, the life verses that we have, we could write them on cards all day long, but do you believe it for you? It's like the guy that shows up at the cleaners and says 24-hour cleaners, and he put, he yanking on the door, and the lights are out, and the business is closed. It's like 7 o'clock at night, so he comes back the next day. They're open, and he says, hey, what's the deal? You guys, it says 24-hour cleaners, but you were closed yesterday. And they said, oh, that's just the name of the business, and we're not open 24 hours a day. <laughs> it's just the name. Here's the deal. God is going to ask you to live the verses that you believe. And they're going to cause you and me to look up. But they're also going to cause me to look at my side and see if I got other warriors who are fighting with me. This is the faith of the gospel, brethren. These are the three things that branch off the one thing. Make sure you have them. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And of course, the faith of the gospel there is simply the historic truth of who Jesus is and how we get saved. There'll be no backing off from that. He continues, 28, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. This is a, what they call a double negative in Greek. You could say it this way, no, not in anything should you ever be alarmed. And the word alarmed, only used here in the New Testament, is pictured in a spooked horse. The idea of alarm here would be the scholars say the original word is uh, an ancient battle scene where two armies are going to collide and they're on horses and a horse is carrying a warrior and it gets spooked and it turns around and goes the other way. Or you've all seen it happen where, and perhaps it's happened to you if you ride horses, where a horse gets spooked and it throws you off. It gets afraid of something and it turns around. And Paul is basically saying, don't you be spooked by anything that your opponents would ever throw at you. You be immovable. Don't back down. I couldn't help but think of the immortal words by Tom Petty. He was an incredible scholar. <laughs> just, just kidding. But he said, no, I won't back down. You can stand me up at the gates of hell but I won't back down. And of course, you know, Tom Petty also talked about waiting, which is a spiritual principle. He said, in the waiting is the hardest part. <laughs> Sorry. So, and you know, somebody after first service said, you know, instead of Tom Petty, you could quote an ancient hymn. That's, <laughs> and Having been confronted by a more spiritual person than I, <laughs> I thought I'd quote it for you. It's how firm a foundation, and here's what it says. <laughs> when through fiery trials the pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not harm thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus doth lean for repose I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I ne I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Praise the Lord. And so Paul says, don't you be alarmed for a second. Don't you be spooked. In fact, this kind of situation brings about an omen. Biblical scholars would tell you the word for sign here is actually an omen. What is that? It's an evidence. It's a proof of what? Of two things. One, when you stand tall and you don't back down with opponents for the gospel, it becomes an omen that you truly belong to Christ and you, you have salvation. And it's an omen of their destruction. Isn't that interesting? When Christians stand tall in the midst of suffering, when they don't back down from the truths of the gospel, unbelievers go, wow, apparently there is really a God. And this person really believes there's a God. And 
since they're a believer and I'm dishing out punishment to them, I'm not on the side of God. Therefore, it looks like they're a true believer and I'm going to be destroyed. Interesting. It becomes an omen. When Jesus was dying on the cross, there were miracles around the cross of Jesus Christ. Darkness, a sign of judgment. The earthquake, Jesus cried from the cross. Some people were convinced there and said, surely this is the son of God. And, and people believed. But other people who were killing him were not. And I wonder how they took the signs around the cross. Probably as an omen of their destruction. And this is what Paul is basically saying. He's saying, look, this is a confirming sign. And this is what I went through. When I was in Philippi, I was walking through your town and Lydia got saved. And then there was a servant girl who was demon possessed. You remember the story? Acts chapter 16. And she was following us around. And she's saying, these men are servants of the most high God. Come to tell you the way of salvation. But she wouldn't stop. These men are servants of the most high God. Come to tell you the way of salvation. These men are. And Paul says, finally, Luke records it, that Paul was annoyed. Praise the Lord. Apparently being annoyed is biblical. He was annoyed. And, and, and the Bible says he said to the spirit, come out of her. <laughs> right? And whatever, she flopped around. And she was set free from a demonic spirit. But that demonic spirit was giving her insights. And she was making a lot of money for her masters. And when her masters saw that she was delivered from the, the uh, spirit, they were upset. They, they said something like this. Our poor little demon-possessed girl. She was making us so much money. Hand over fist. Now Paul delivered her. Terrible guy that he is. And then they went to the authorities. These Jews are here practicing customs that we don't believe and we don't practice. And basically, Paul got beaten with rods and put in the stocks, remember? And if you've never heard this before, what they would do is they would beat you, open up your back, so you'd be bleeding. They'd put you in a jail with one-star accommodations, half-star accommodations, probably rats on the floor. You'd get no food unless someone shows up to feed you. And when you put in the stocks, they spread your legs out as far as, as they possibly can, then they lock you into place. And Paul, and I think it was either Silas or Barnabas in this scene, begin to sing, you remember? hymns at midnight. Can you imagine? Would you be sitting there? Jesus loves me. This I know. What would you do? Well, they started singing and the prisoners were listening and the prison house shook and the bonds came off and a quake, quaking Philippian jailer fell down at their feet and said, sirs, what must I do? to be saved. See, he saw true evidence of their salvation and his destruction. He was the one responsible for holding them in the cell, an opponent of Christianity. Paul had done nothing wrong but preach the gospel and deliver a girl. And so that's what may happen sometimes. Your opponent may say, well, I want what you have because if you can stand tall in this time of suffering, then maybe I need Jesus. It's from this spring that convicting power flows says moitier to challenge the world. And a genuine conviction too. Not a passing impression, but a real dawning of eternal truths, a clear omen of destruction. The truth that will not be faced is the eternal destruction of, destruction of God. It was the first ploy of the tempter to deny a God of judgment. Genesis 3, 4, you will not surely die. And human eyes remain sealed to this conviction until they are opened by a true spiritual conviction. It arises here from seeing the church standing for Christ, for eternal things, enduring worldly loss and dispute for the greater riches found in the spirit and throughout all standing united. Here's the idea. When Paul is Saul before he becomes Paul, stands there and Stephen's face is shining like an angel. Acts 6.15. And he addresses the council. And the light of God is on Stephen's face. Most scholars of the New Testament will tell you, they believe that the seeds of, of Saul's faith, who becomes Paul, who is our author here, are formed in the killing of Stephen as he stands in front of the council and says, I see heaven open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. 
That witness on display spelled that Stephen was a true believer, his salvation and their destruction. And it was Saul who finally, of course, uh, bowed his knee to Jesus on the road to Damascus. And so it may not be that dramatic for us, but here's the point. When we live out our faith through the ups and downs that inevitably come in this life, we are going to face these questions, brethren. We already have, and we're going to face them some more. If our settled conviction is that we believe in not only the power of Christ's resurrection, but even in the deep fellowship of his suffering, the Lord will walk us through every season of life and bring us safely home into his heavenly kingdom. I'm going to show you one parallel verse. We'll, go, we'll come back to Philippians and we're done. First Peter is where I want you to turn. It's the end of the New Testament. Here's what happens. Uh, this is one layer of this teaching that I want you to see. First Peter 4. Peter's writing to a suffering church and he writes these words. First Peter 4, 12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. First Peter 4, 12 which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree, 1 Peter 4.13, that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Something happens, something supernatural happens, an extra dimension of spirit power when we stand for Christ in the face of suffering. God does something very unique there. People get a view into the kingdom of God that maybe they would never see any other way than when a Christian goes through suffering and leans into God. I will tell you, I'm the first one Back to Philippians and we'll finish that praise, Lord, lift my suffering. I don't want to suffer. Suffering's not fun. And I will tell you, I heard a pastor one time say, I was in a kind of a difficult season myself and I heard him say, uh, suffering doesn't last forever. And God often allows seasons of suffering and then he lifts it. So sometimes we are going through something we, and we might say to ourselves, this is never going to end. Am I ever going to get past this? And seasons of suffering do end. But ultimately, we know what God's going to do, right? He's going to bring us into his presence and wipe away every tear from our eyes. And so Paul says, you are experiencing now, final verse, the same conflict, the same idea, agony, which you saw in me, in your town, and now here to be in me as I am writing you from prison. This is the same thing that Jesus went through, I'm going through. Don't be surprised by it. Stand together. Lean into the power of God. Don't be afraid. Would you bow your heart? Lord, we are so grateful for your word. It's a lamp to our feet and a light to, light to our path. Thank you that Jesus, you the righteous one, suffered for us, the unrighteous, to bring us to God. For Christ suffered once the just for the unjust to bring us to God. Lord, we know that through your suffering, you being the suffering servant, you secured your people's salvation. And we have a Lord, a King, who didn't simply wind up the world and say, good luck. That's deism and that's not biblical revelation. We have a God who entered into our pain. Jesus, you suffered, some say, more than the cumulative suffering of all mankind. It was hard to even tell that you were human on that cross. But you were wounded for my transgressions, bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement for my peace was upon you. And by your wounds, we are healed. Would you help us, Lord? Because we, we do have a tendency to stray, to be weak, to be double-minded. We wrestle with our sin and our weakness, Lord. And oftentimes, seasons of suffering, they bring clarity. 
about what's really important and what's really going to last. And none of us invite them, Lord, but we know you're sovereign over them. And we know that you use them to bring clarity to a people that often loses its way. And I would be the first one to admit that that's what I wrestle with as well. But would you strengthen your people as we stand together for the faith of the gospel, as we stand arm in arm, as we are not spooked by our opponents, as we stand by the power of God, it will become a sign that we are truly believers. Maybe it'll be even an affirmation to ourselves because we often have doubts about our own faith that when we stand and keep believing, even when we don't understand what you're doing, it shows that we do love you. And we love you because you first loved us. Now, for those of you who are watching, you may be watching this later, those of you who are physically in this building, a moment of decision is before you. Will you trust in the suffering servant who came and died for you and rose? Will you believe? Will you make him your Lord, your King, your God, your Savior, your Shepherd? Right now is a moment that I would encourage you not to let pass you by. And if you've not asked Jesus to be your Lord, just tell him, Lord, I repent of my sin. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for doing it my own way. I believe that you came into this world, prayed if it's you, that you died on that terrible cross for me. You suffered for me, Lord. I believe that you defeated death and that you're in heaven right now. I believe you're coming again. And I'm going to make you, I'm going to ask you to be my king, my Lord, my God, my Savior, my shepherd. Please forgive me. Restore me, renew me. Let me be born again to that living hope. Maybe you're a prodigal and you've been wandering and maybe some of these even difficult questions have moved you away from where you'd like to be. Well, you can come home right now. I believe for many of you, God has tailored this specific message on this day to draw you back. So just come home because there's nowhere else to go and there's nowhere else we'd rather be. And Lord, for these precious saints, this incredible congregation that stands arm in arm for the faith of the gospel in this community and well beyond it, would you strengthen them encourage them, shower fresh grace upon their lives. Let them be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that this is a, the fullest life we can live. This is never in vain. And one day you will say, well done. And you will finish what you began in us.